This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, we got to talk about gas prices for the hot question of the day, right? Because anytime you go by a gas station right now, you're going to do a double take because you can't believe how quickly the prices went up over the last 10 days or so. Even if your gas tank is full, it's still going to hurt a little bit when you look at those prices. The ones we're seeing in most areas around Metro Vancouver and even in other parts of the province now, the, it's inching upwards. But in Metro Vancouver today, it looks like we hit another high, $1.69.9 per litre. That is expensive. So here's the thing. Do you think it's inevitable that it's going to exceed $1.70? Like, will we see that magical $1.70 a liter at the pump, do you think, by the long weekend? That's about a week away. What do you think? That's our hot question of the day today. Do you think, no, I'm an optimist. It's not going to break that number. Or do you think, yeah, it seems inevitable at this point? Why don't you contribute to our hot question of the day on this? You can go to SimiSarah980 on Twitter uh, to do that. You can also, um, let's see, where else can you do this? Oh, you can phone us, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899 on our buzz line. Or you can email me, simi at cknw.com. Now, I'm just quickly checking gasbuddy.com. And right now, it looks like I'm looking at Surrey. Uh, because in Vancouver, I think most prices have gone up to like $1.68.9 at this point. But if you're looking at different parts of Surrey, there's still some variety in the prices. For instance, I see $1.60 at one gas station. That's an SO station at King George in Surrey. I see another one that's $1.56 at a Petro Canada station on 104th in Surrey. Uh, so there's still some variation. So $1.57 at another SO station on 152nd. So if you see something lower than $1.68.9 out there, grab it today. Even if your tank is three quarters full, fill it up if you see anything less than that because the lowest price I'm looking at right now for Surrey is $1.43.9. Uh, that's at uh, 85th and Scott Road, by the way, if you want to head out that way and grab that price. I don't think it's going to stay that way for very long. It's a Chevron station right now tagged at $1.43.9. If you find that, if you're in that vicinity, get over there and fill your tank up because otherwise it's going to really hurt. If you see something that breaks $1.69.9 you know, today, please let me know right away. Send me at cknw.com so we can pass that news on to people. But in the meantime, the question then, do you think it is going to exceed $1.70 by the long weekend? Do you think, yes, this seems inevitable or are you an optimist? You think, no, I'm an optimist on this. We're going to keep it below that price. Let me know what that is. Send me at cknw.com. And again, if you're in Surrey, there are a couple places to get it at a lower price. 72nd and King George right now is showing an SO station at $1.40.9. And there's going to be a lineup, I am sure, within a couple of minutes there, if that price holds in there. So yeah, we'll be talking more about that. There's a new report out from the Public Health Agency of Canada, and it's revealing some of the grim outcomes of this country's opioid overdose crisis that we have going on. 
This report says that more than 10,000 people have died from an opioid overdose in just the last three years. That is a huge number, more than 10,000 people. In fact, in the first nine months of 2018, 3,286 Canadians died because of this. And almost 1,200 of those people were in BC, more than any other province in Canada. Now, the Public Health Agency says this data shows that fentanyl and other fentanyl-related substances continue to be a major driver of this crisis. And today, there are increasing concerns about how patients can actually be treated. Officials with Vancouver Coastal Health say they have been dealing with an uptick in overdoses over the past few weeks. The drugs have been spiked with benzodiazepines. And to make matters worse, naloxone, which is that antidote that they give to counter opioid overdoses, doesn't work on benzodiazepines, which is really complicating the situation. At St. Paul's in Vancouver, people aren't, being, aren't waking up after being given naloxone, even though they are still alive and breathing. So what do we do about this? Is this the beginning of an even worse chapter in this overdose crisis? Well, just before the show started this morning, I spoke with Garth Mullins. You may know him from his podcast. It's called Crackdown. He is an opioid user who advocates access to opioid addiction treatment like methadone. And here's what he had to say about what's going on. Well, Garth, thanks so much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. Now, I know that you talk a lot about the opioid overdose crisis and your podcast and elsewhere. What is it that you're seeing now? Like, what has changed out there on the streets when it comes to this? This is, for me, this is my second overdose crisis. Like, people who've been around Vancouver for a while will remember in the 90s, we had uh, strong heroin and someone dying every day around here. There was a declared public health emergency. I was a heroin user all the way through that, so I survived that, and I'm hoping to survive this one. But uh, I've lost probably half the people that I grew up with along the way. So what I'm seeing is not new, sadly. It's old, and it's a drug war phenomenon. It's a prohibition phenomenon. You make something illegal, it gets stronger. Just like under alcohol prohibition, how moonshine became the strong thing where people would have drank beer before. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that same law, whether it's alcohol or drugs – you make it illegal, you crack down on it, and the illegal market will produce a stronger and stronger version. So as we go through the years, we keep seeing stronger and stronger things coming up. And so now it's fentanyl and carfentanyl, and you're seeing uh, benzodiazepines like, like Valium and Xanax kind of getting mixed in and sold as heroin or with heroin now, which is extremely dangerous. So, uh, Is it a little bit different this time, though, do you think? Because what I find different about the conversation this time is that there is actual active discussion about legalizing some of these harder drugs so that we don't have this happen. I mean, the conversation may be different, but the leadership, the, the, you know, the, the Trudeau government has told us that's pretty much off the table. Uh, and n- there's no one that's, that's doing that. Like any police force could essentially decriminalize um, <clears throat> possession of hard drugs tomorrow if they want to. So the Vancouver Police Department could decide, well, just like they did with pot ages ago, this isn't really a priority for us anymore. You know, they just stopped jacking up kids at, at, around for smoking pot ages ago. You know, like in, in my youth, it seems they lost their sort of um, interest in doing that or their zeal. Uh, they could do that with hard drugs. And police do you think that would make a difference? Well, for, for one, criminalizing drugs, it makes it extremely dangerous for drug users. So it means that people have to become underground. They, have, they are criminals. They're made criminals by the law by using drugs. So you have to use in places that are more dangerous. You have to be more secretive. You have to get your drugs 
in a more sort of furtive and underground way. Uh, and you're going to be less likely to go seek health, help and uh, health care. Yeah, exactly. So that's my next question. Then, like, what about providing more help? What about you said this is your second time around on this? What would help you then decide that this isn't going to happen anymore? I mean, for me, it was accessing the methadone program. And so we should make that a lot easier and we should have a lot more options. Methadone doesn't work for everybody, but the principle is the same. It's basically like a nicotine patch. You know, you give somebody something that's a lot safer, uh, that you know what's in it, that doesn't have some of the harmful aspects. Like, so for smoking, you know, you, you stop smoking and mm. you got the nicotine patch. Methadone's the same thing for heroin. <clears throat> they got a bunch of other of those. I mean, the pharmacy is full of opioids that are of known quantity. And safe. So if someone's using uh, street opioids uh, that could ha- be full of fentanyl and all kinds of other stuff like pig dewormer and household detergent, uh, rat poison, uh, you know, concrete dust, all, all this kind of stuff that gets mixed in there, the safe supply, the safe alternative is at every pharmacy in this province. So we could, we could do this tomorrow. So the phenomenon of the overdose crisis is actually policy. The most dangerous thing about drugs is that they're illegal. So we've made all these policy choices that are killing people. It's not a natural phenomenon like a, you know, like some kind of a, a fire or flood. Right. Or, but is there something? And this is, I think, the question that a lot of people have when they hear your story. Is there something that would help you to stop taking drugs? Yeah, I take methadone right now. Yeah. So uh, you know that's fine with me. Like I'm just going to keep taking methadone. Uh, you know, like I'm I'm on my way to work here after this show. Uh, it gives me a stable life because it doesn't <clears throat> risk me going to jail, dying, or becoming bankrupt uh, <clears throat> in taking it. So that's that's okay. It's just that the opiate I'm taking every day happens to be prescribed, legal, and safe. And do you think if we did that for more people, then they could also live more productive lives? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, there's 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 no question that the most productive life you can live is one where you're breathing and having a pulse. So, uh, and or, or I should say the inverse: the least productive life you could live is one where you're dead. Uh, and certainly, that's the key thing right now: is people not dying, and that's the key to not dying in the very short term is getting a safe supply. We have talked about this so much over the last three years, and I find that there's still a disconnect for a lot of people out there who just who don't understand how people can still take these drugs when they know there's something dangerous in them. Maybe you could help uh, people understand that. Sure. Well, I mean, part of my drug use was because, uh, you know, I was around some people who I shouldn't have been around as a child or shouldn't have been around me, really. And, and not great things happen, and that leaves a big hole in you and you go and try and fill that up with something. For me, it was heroin. And so that's your past chasing you all the time. When you're wired to opiates, your future is dope sickness, withdrawal, uh, feeling extremely sick and having all that trauma come crashing back over you. So you're kind of on the knife edge of the present and it becomes much more abstract, the big negative consequences for it. You know, you're just trying to tread water and keep your head above it. So I, I think that the idea that people can just choose to stop with willpower, it's a pernicious myth. You know, it's, it's out there a lot. I think we recognize that you can't just choose to stop smoking. You can't just – like lots and lots of things happen that you can't just choose to stop. It's like you can't, you can't prevent your diarrhea from happening just by willpower. It doesn't work that way. You know, some <laughs> things are a little out of your hands. That is just a perfect way of putting it though because you're right. People do think that but that they probably – those same people who think that though – also probably have some kind of bad habit that they are unable to break, but they just don't – they don't equalize those two. Sure. And this is like – this is this kind of 
conservative myth that's all over our society of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's just like we actually live together as a, as a group of people in a city, in families, in our workplaces. We help each other. We work with each other. We're not all these lone atomized individuals that have to be somehow uh, pulling ourselves up with our bootstraps. So our society decides to help people in all kinds of circumstances, in all kinds of ways. Uh, and you know, we should also yeah. help drug users. So, Garth, with the latest numbers that came out from the Public Health Agency of Canada, it shows that the number of accidental opioid deaths due to fentanyl up seven up to seventy three percent. And in BC, still leading the way with more than 1,100 deaths in the first three quarters of 2018. What does that tell you about what's going on out there? Uh, it's not getting better that this has been going on now. We're just, uh, I think it, next week will be the three-year anniversary of the declaration of the mm-hmm. public health emergency in BC. Yeah. So it's hard to call something an emergency or a crisis if it's been happening for three years. It's obviously the decision makers, the people in charge have decided this is okay, this is normal, and we're going to tolerate this. So <clears throat> I don't know. I don't – I mean maybe maybe emergency is the wrong word. I, it feels like a war. You know, it just feels like when there are things that could be done that aren't done, when the government doesn't act uh, in an emergency fashion, like when it's fighting a forest fire, there's, there's emergency command structures that trigger in. They don't debate for eight months or a year. Oh, who's bringing the fire truck? Who's bringing the hoses? You know, that's just government as usual, that slow, meandering kind of diffusion mm-hmm. of responsibility. But that's what we're doing for the overdose crisis. It's the slow, meandering diffusion of responsibility. So if you had a chance then to tell people in charge right now the number one thing that could be done that might work, what would it be? Well, you got to give people safe supply. you got to decriminalize. Like there's just – these things will have an immediate effect and it is it is known it's not just my opinion there's a ton of research on this for years and years and years that this is what will turn off the overdose crisis almost overnight so the choice not to do this it's a political calculation it's a political choice and it's killing people it's killing people i know i mean every month practically every week i go to memorials and is the naloxone helping or not? Definitely it's helping. And we fought for naloxone for years to get to get our hands on it. Actually, since the last overdose crisis in the 90s is when I became aware of it. And by 2014 is when I finally was able to uh, legally get my hands on it. Really? So, yes, it was a long fight. We've been saying forever, we want this stuff. And in fact, we had to obtain it, um, I wouldn't say illegally, but without sanction unofficially. And uh, so we, we had it. We trained ourselves with it for a while before we were even illegal, legally uh, allowed to have it. But this is how we have safe injection sites in the city. We open them first illegally. This is how we have a n- distribution of new syringes in the city is we distributed them illegally first. Because Vancouver in the 90s had the highest rates of HIV transmission in the yeah. industrialized world because of the policy of no needles. So, uh, you know, it's it's just – it's always goes back to these policy decisions made by human beings. So you think we can change it? I absolutely can. If people are saying, oh, you just don't have the willpower to quit drugs, I'll say, okay, you know, I I have tried. I've got on methadone. Lots of people try. People make great efforts to change their lives. People who change policy, that's all they're paid to do is to make decisions about policy. So they don't have to have strong willpower. They don't have to uh, fight through uh, systems of trauma. They just have to make a decision to let us stay alive. Garth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Amy. It's Garth Mullins, his producer of the Crackdown podcast. He's also an opioid user who advocates access to opioid addiction treatment like methadone uh, to really put a damper on this opioid overdose crisis that we have going here. 
So during the Alberta election campaign of the last few weeks, we've tried every week to check in with somebody in Alberta who can give us an idea of how it's been going. What have the big issues been? And this week, well, there is a lot to talk about. We know that the leader of the United Conservative Party, Jason Kenney, got some pretty big federal backing ahead of the provincial election next Tuesday. That's Jason Kenney. He was joined by federal Conservative leader Andrew Scheer in Calgary for an election rally. So let's find out what else has been going on here. What about the polls? For more on all of this, we're joined now by host Ryan Jesperson from 630 Chad. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on to talk about this because, you know, we are very curious here in BC about how things are going in Alberta. How would you size up how that campaign's gone so far? Yeah, well, and I'll tell you that this is this is amazing. I just wrapped up my traditional Friday in-studio roundtable about eight minutes ago, Simi, and we, and we concluded by talking about what Alberta's relationship with British Columbia might look like by mid-next week. So this feels like Good timing. You're right. Uh, Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer, leader of Canada's official opposition, was in Calgary yesterday where it was snowing, by the way. Yeah, you know and, what, uh, Ryan? Not snowing out here. Yeah, not <laughs> snowing. And, and, well, I'm happy to tell you, it's not snowing in Edmonton either, in, in Canada's <laughs> northernmost major city. Uh, so, you know, but, uh, yeah, take it for what it's worth. Of course, Andrew Scheer wants to see Jason Kenney win. Of course, Jason Kenney wants to see Andrew Scheer win. Yes. Uh, their perspectives align on a lot of things, uh, including uh, carbon levy and carbon tax legislation. But here are some interesting points to note as well. You're not going to see high-profile federal endorsements for Premier Rachel Notley because she wouldn't take it from Jagmeet Singh if it was offered up. She wouldn't want it. Uh, the conservative uh, leanings of Alberta's NDP are evident, I think, to to most Alberta voters. And Notley's done everything she can to distance herself from the Leap Manifesto and a lot of the other things that the federal NDP represents. I'll also point out that there's some, in, some interesting conversation as of late as to what the impact of uh, Premier Jason Kenney could have on the federal political landscape. A lot of people believe that if he keeps his promises to immediately pick fights with British Columbia and Quebec, this could actually play in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's favor. So we'll have to see what rolls out. Of course, we still have to go to the polls. Nothing's a done deal yet. No, that's true. So let's talk about the polls then. How are they looking? Have things tightened up at all? Not really. Uh, it, I mean, it depends on which ones you look at. It depends on which day they are. We had exclusive Ipsos Global News polling uh, just a few days ago that showed the United Conservatives with an approximate eight-point lead on the New Democrats. Uh, the, the biggest span that I've seen is about 11 points in favor of the United Conservatives. And the one thing that's consistent is that the, I'll call them the third-place party, and there are several parties vying for votes, at least six or seven of them, Simi, but the Alberta party, led by former Edmonton Mayor Stephen Mandel, you could describe them as the most centrist option on the ballot, really hasn't gained the traction that I know it was happening to gain. They're pulling at approximately 10% among decided and leaning voters. And uh, again, Albertans still have to go to the polls, but I think that would be characterized as a disappointment. There were right. high hopes around what the Alberta party might be able to do. We've heard a lot uh, outside of Alberta about how negative the campaign has been. Would you would you characterize it that way? Oof. I mean, geez. You know, when, when, when our Premier Rachel Notley, well, she's NDP leader Rachel Notley right now, but when she dropped the and announced uh, the day that Albertans would go to the polls. She did it to much fanfare in Calgary. Everybody knew that, I mean, Edmonton is a, you know has the tendency to be an orange island in a sea yeah. of blue, right? So uh, she announced her campaign down in Calgary. That's where a lot of the big battleground is going to be. And within 90 seconds of announcing it would be April 16th, she was already calling her opponent, Jason Kenney, a liar. 
higher. Uh, the NDP Warham has done a good job, I think, of mining uh, nuggets, most of them discouraging and deplorable, uh, from the social media accounts of United Conservative Party candidates. And it has been story after story after story of, of, of uh, accusations of transphobia, homophobia, uh, racism, white nationalism. Uh, to a certain extent, Jason Kenney has addressed these. A couple of candidates prevented from seeking nominations. A couple nomination, uh, a couple official candidates actually booted and asked to resign before the deadline. But the most high-profile one was a candidate by the name of Mark Smith. He's right. an incumbent in Drayton Valley, Devon, a 30-year teacher. He was elected under the Wild Rose, uh, think right-wing conservative banner, four years ago. Uh, many considered him to be a favorite for education minister uh, under Jason Kenney, should he become premier. Mark Smith, a sermon he preached in 2013 emerged where he said that gay love is not real love. And then a position paper he wrote in 2015, while in MLA, suggesting that private Christian schools should be able to fire teachers if they find out they're gay. Ugh. People called for the immediate dismissal of Mark Smith. But here's the thing, Simi. It was too late to pull him off the ballot. Right. It was too late to replace him as a candidate. So Jason Kenney has allowed him to stand as a candidate to much outcry, except for in the riding where Mark Smith is running, Drayton Valley, Devon, where people, at least what they're telling reporters, they don't seem to care. The social issues have been big through this campaign. It yeah. has been nasty, a lot of mudslinging, and I think Albertans are getting exhausted. Yeah. Do you think it's going to tighten up anymore, or do you think it's it's kind of a done deal at this point? Well, I'm trying to read it. I mean, I just heard your newscast uh, and uh, your anchor doing a great job pointing out the fact that, I mean, if you if, consider this, Simi, we had approximately, we had just under 1.5 million Albertans vote in 2015. That was the orange crush. That was yeah. the big election where people were angry and motivated to vote out the progressive conservatives under then uh, PC leader Jim Prentice. May he rest in peace. Uh, about 1.48, I think off the top of my head, million voters turned out. Our advance polls have already seen more than 400,000, which is, you know, a approximately wow. a third, just under a third of what we saw. So what does that say? I mean, there's no way yeah. to read into it right now, but I suspect it may have something to do with a highly motivated electorate. But on so what we'll side? See what that, uh, yeah, exactly. Everyone, you know, someone, a wise person said to me yesterday, uh, when asked which political party has the most momentum, they said, well, all of them do. It just depends what direction you're talking about. <laughs> that is so true. Well, Ryan, you better mark your calendar then, because I have a feeling we're going to have to talk to you next Wednesday when this is all over. I would be happy to join you. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Simi. That's Ryan Jesperson, our host at 630 Ched. Well, any parent out there knows that when your child goes through a picky eating phase, you get a little worried about the fact that they may not be getting all the vitamins and nutrients that they need to grow up healthy. It can be a bit stressful, right? So that's why so many parents give their children vitamin supplements. But are they necessary? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today with the help of registered dietitian Desiree Nielsen. Hi, Desiree. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Okay, so is it necessary? A lot of parents do this, right? And and I do it. You know, I have an almost nine-year-old and an almost four-year-old, and they do get supplements. Um, but it's not always necessary. And I think that's the thing. As parents, we want the best for our kids. And yes. so if one day they don't eat their dinner, we freak out. And they, <laughs> like, go to the store and like buy seven supplements. But if they generally eat well, if they're growing well, if they're you know learning well at school, they're probably getting everything they need, even if they don't always eat all the vegetables you'd want them to. Okay, but sometimes with kids, you know, and I know I've had nieces and nephews, and one of my kids, it was the same thing, is, you know, they'll go a week with eating like plain pasta with nothing on it. And then you really start to worry that they're not eating anything or just plain bread or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah, you know, my, my toddler is still in that, like, you know, like, 
beige food phase, you know? <laughs> and, and so I think it is, it's important, you know, a supplement, particularly a multivitamin can help with those little micronutrients. It's insurance. Um, but the other thing that parents need to know, you know, my, my little one, I do give her a multi because she is like that. It's pasta and toast and, you know, maybe some mm, yogurt, maybe an apple. Diet. I love yeah. that diet. <laughs> yeah. So I do, I didn't give it to my son, but I do give them to her. Um, but it still doesn't make up for all of the nutrition you get in all of those foods they're not eating. So it's great to help them fend off, you know, iron deficiency or making sure they're getting their B vitamins, but you still want to help them work towards a balanced, right. inclusive diet. Because I remember talking to my doctor about this because I was concerned too about the younger one years ago. And he said, you know, he's meeting all his growth targets. He's fine. Like, I don't think you need to worry too much about that. So, so I didn't give him any vitamins. So how do you balance that for parents? If they're growing and they, they're healthy, then... Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing we'll never know. And it doesn't hurt to give them a multivitamin, but you're exactly right. You know, if they're growing, if they're learning, if they seem happy and healthy, they're probably fine. Especially, I mean, most of us growing up. I mean, I yeah. remember the, the Kool-Aid. And I literally the, you know, ate sugary KD breakfast mac and cheese for like a year. <laughs> and so. look at us. We turned out just <laughs> fine. So I would say, you know, if you're concerned as a parent, if it's a short phase, if it's a few weeks, a couple of months, really don't worry at all. If your child consistently is quite a picky eater really doesn't get right. a variety of fruits, vegetables, go ahead, give them a multi. It doesn't hurt. It's not absolutely necessary. There's really only a couple things that your kids absolutely need. The first is vitamin D. Okay. Every human needs vitamin D. We need it from birth. It's the only thing that breast milk doesn't provide in adequate amounts. So you should be giving your kids vitamin D every single day. You get those little drops, just put like a drop on their dinner. You're done. And then if people are raising a plant-based family, a 100% plant-based or vegan family, those kids need vitamin B12. But okay. everything else, you're What about a- iron? Iron is on demand. So if the kids are anemic, if their iron is low, then you give iron. But otherwise, it's about giving iron-rich foods, which we're kind of trained to do when Hmm. they're babies. You know, you give the cereal. uh, If you eat meat, you're giving those meats. If you're plant-based, you're doing the tofu, the lentils, the seeds, all of those iron-rich foods. The cereals are generally fortified too, right? And a lot of baby food, a lot of kids' food that you're feeding them, it is fortified. So all of those baby foods are absolutely fortified. Um, When they get older, if they do breakfast cereal, most of the conventional breakfast cereals are fortified with a lot of B vitamins People and iron. Eating breakfast cereals, Desiree? You know, I feel like they are. <laughs> I really do feel like they are. I feel um, like the cereal aisle is getting smaller and smaller. It is getting smaller. And I feel like we're doing less of the sugary cereals, which I'm really yes. happy with. Um, but cereal is definitely a fact for busy families. Um, I think the one thing for people to remember is that you can supplement with food. It is about getting those things in. If your kids are doing smoothies, you hide the hemp seeds in there and you get those omega-3s in. You don't necessarily need a supplement for everything. There's a lot of really healthy foods you can like sneak into the dinners that that's help a, you. That's a new thing too. Like I would say the last 10 years, right? Is this idea that you can sneak good food or vegetables into regular food and they might not even know it. It is. It's true, especially because of how we're eating so many different things that make that possible, you know, like the smoothies. Smoothies weren't really a thing over a decade ago, but now there's so much you can get into a smoothie and kids are probably just not even going to know it. Call it a fruit milkshake. Yeah, and I wouldn't wouldn't sneak, have a 100% sneak strategy because then you're not teaching your kids to accept a wide variety of foods. But if you are also presenting them with fruits and vegetables and different foods at meal opportunities, which they do or do not eat, then in the tomato sauce, you can like grind in some extra carrots or get a little bit of spinach into that smoothie. And that will help bulk them up when they're on the road to appreciating those foods. It's hard work 
for a parent, like balancing all that nutrition for kids. It's stressful. It is. And I think for parents, you know, it, it happens to me all the time. We also just need to give ourselves a break, you know, particularly the parents who are trying to put a bunch of fresh foods on their plate. Not everything is in boxes and bags. We're all probably yeah. doing a lot better than we realize. That's a good point because we're so hard on ourselves, we're aren't so, we? The so pe- hard. The people who try are also the hardest on themselves. Uh, that's so true. Okay, so then for the absolute basics, Desiree, what should parents, you know, you're saying encourage them for some supplements, but what's the absolute basic they should be doing? The absolute basic is vitamin D every single day, uh, making sure your kids are getting some calcium-rich beverages, either dairy or non-dairy milk daily, uh, a wide variety of foods. That's it. If you're worried about kids' growth or behavior or attention, go get their iron checked. If you're 100% plant-based, make sure you get that vitamin B12. But those are really the basics. A multivitamin if you want. If they have tummy troubles, maybe a probiotic. But the basics are just that. They're pretty basic. And the multivitamins are pretty easy now because like, there's gummies and there's whatever. And the chewables. When I was a kid, I had to take those Flintstones one a day and they were chalky and they were awful and I hated them. Yeah, and the challenge in finding one, you know, because I've given a, a few different kinds, there's some that my kids love and some that they don't. So you kind of do have to do a little trial and error. But most of them are fairly standardized. There isn't a huge variation. Products for kids are very tightly regulated, so there isn't a huge amount of variation between multivitamin products, for example. Okay, well that's all good. Then good advice for parents to try, right? Yeah. When in doubt, sneak it into their food. Exactly. When in doubt, and make sure you get that vitamin D. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Desiree. (laughs) Thank you. That's Desiree Nielsen, registered dietitian, giving parents some advice there on when you should and perhaps shouldn't give your kids vitamin supplements. I know it's a tough call for a lot of parents. Let's talk about golfing, shall we? Because it's almost getting into golfing season and it seems as though golfing greens in Vancouver, well, maybe let's just say running their course. Park Board Commissioner Dave Demers has added a motion on next Monday's agenda meeting to, quote, evaluate the realized and unrealized benefits of park board land currently used for golf. So essentially, the motion points out that the usage of golf land has been declining. And there are three 18-hole courses that are owned by the Vancouver Park Board. And those courses take up 15% of all land under park board jurisdiction. I wanted to talk more about this motion, where it could go, what we might see happen here. Uh, So Dave Demers joins us now, Vice Chair of the Vancouver Park Board. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. What made you decide to take this on? Um. Various things. I've always been curious about the golf situation in this city. We, um, it's a lot of land. It's 460-some acres that we have. And, uh, well, we're very proud of those golf courses and very proud of the parkland we have. So I started looking at the numbers and um, uh, noticed that, uh, indeed, there's a decline in the attendance to those three golf courses, a, a decline that started in the uh, 1990s. And um, so I started digging a little further and realized that, well, maybe we should uh, look a closer look, uh, have a closer look at the whole situation and come up with, um, with what I call the benefit analysis. So what I'm hoping for is like, I'm really hoping we, uh, we can look at uh, uh, what we put, we put in those uh, parts to make golf happen, what we get out of it, 
and then what we're missing out on, if anything, by having golf on that land and uh, little else in terms of recreational activities. So that's that's where I'm starting from. Right. Okay. What is the usage like for those golf courses? Well, so um, in terms of overall statistics, we've got those three uh, uh, courses, uh, championship courses, and uh, the decline has been uh, over the, I would say, from the 1990s to today, we've they suffered about a 31% decline. Of course, uh, it's still a very uh, popular sport, the sport that is more popular, of course, in the summer when the weather is nicer. And so what I'm hoping here is that maybe we'll find a way of um, um, optimizing uh, some of those courses in the off-season or when there's less demand for golf. Right. It's tricky, though, isn't it? Because for a lot of people, that is the most affordable golf option they have. There's a lot of high school kids who learn how to play on those courses. Yeah, that is true. And uh, we're making quite a bit of money out of the, um, out of the uh, golf courses. It's about, for the park board, it's about $9 million, uh, per year for the three courses. And um, so when we look at this, uh, I personally foresee ways of increasing accessibility to those golf courses. So if we're um, at first sight, we seem to be under capacity for those courses. So if we were to, I don't know, uh, come up with a day where it's half price for teenagers or for school groups and we could have even uh, 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 better prices for um, uh, people of a certain age. So that, those are different ways I'm sure staff would look into it um, to increase accessibility to um, right. some or all the uh, courses. Have we not done that before? Like, that seems like a pretty great idea is to say to kids, it's definitely deeply discounted for kids and for other groups. Have we not tried this kind of stuff? You know, I'm not aware of um, uh, a study that looks specifically at golf. And um, to uh, kind of go back a bit to, uh, to your first question, uh, the park board at the moment is doing something that's called band play. And band play is a uh, master planning exercise that looks at uh, parks and rec for the next 10, 2,500 years. Mm-hmm. And so what we do with this is we're really, really looking uh, at everything we do, gathering information, overlapping population growth, changes, and so on, and coming up with pretty impressive statistics uh, uh, that can then be used to plan ahead. And van play excludes uh, most um, golf activities. And so that's something else that uh, when I noticed that, uh, well, first I asked staff why, and um, I was explained that golf is uh, quite uh, complex and has a very unique place in the city uh, within the park system, the recreation system. And that's the main reason why golf was mostly left out, out of that um, uh, master planning exercise. So this motion has this as a main objective, uh, putting that equity and sustainability lens that we're using in van play, putting that on golf courses as well. Right. But we're not talking about like reducing the golf courses here, are we? Like, is that an objective that you would put on the table? The only objective I have at the moment is like us drawing a comprehensive picture of the golf situation so we can then plan ahead or have the tools to plan ahead. So I, I have no other objectives than trying to get a better idea of what we have so we can then look for the future with solid data. Right, because that's a very sensitive subject, I think, as you know out there. When you start talking about those golf courses and the the idea that even maybe they might be on the chopping block, people get very sensitive to that. Yeah, and rightfully so. The beautiful spaces. I was at Langara again yesterday, and it's uh, it's super parkland, but it was also empty. I mean, the weather was not very nice, but I could have, 
you know, I, I wish we could allow birders, for example, to actually walk the trails when there's no golf happening. So those are uh, uh, various ideas that I, I've had personally uh, as I've been working on this and ideas I hope uh, staff will eventually consider to make sure we uh, increase accessibility to those uh, courses. Right. So you're thinking in terms of opening them up just to the wider public and not just golfers. That's one one of the avenues I'm sure staff will look into. That's much um, uh, further than I want to take this uh, this motion uh, on Monday night. I, Monday night really is just asking commissioners to let's have this conversation. And to have this conversation, we need to know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, just I'll give you an example of the statistics about the attendance, as I um, uh, mentioned earlier about the overall 30% decline. Um, those are our own statistics, but they were buried in, in files uh, that I, and as far as I know, staff was not even aware of those statistics in the 1990s. So I just want us to, you know, take it all and have a, a better look at it all. Okay, so what is the process like for this? You're bringing a motion on Monday night, then what happens? Um, we'll see how the motion goes. If the motion was to be um, agreed on for uh, by majority of the commissioners, it would then be uh, sent to staff, and staff would be uh, looking into performing or uh, implementing uh, that motion. So doing the research and so on, I would expect that a report would come back to us with the various findings they'll come up with uh, in, a f- in a near future. Uh, so, do you know of any other jurisdiction, Mr. Demers, who has been dealing with this kind of question or how they have dealt with it? Yeah, um, I'm not sure how other cities have dealt with golf. I know golf is um, just by the land it takes. Uh, it's quite often uh, looked at for various solu- potential solutions to various problems elsewhere. Um, so it's, it, it makes it to the news quite often. Um, one thing I can add with this is uh, I was happy to see that yesterday, uh, uh, the, uh, I think it's the president of uh, BC Golf, uh, by after being explained uh, the, the idea of the motion, um, they simply agreed with us that yes, the game is changing. The game is still very popular, yeah. and that such exercise and master planning should be performed so we know what we're working with and where we're going. So okay, so we'll have to see what happens Monday. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. Thanks to you. Appreciate that. That is Dave Demers, who is the vice chair of the Vancouver Park Board, bringing forth a motion on Monday to essentially examine the usage at the three kind of public golf courses that we have in the city. I'm not even a regular viewer of Game of Thrones, and I know what that music is. Like, it's everywhere, right? You go, oh, I know, that's a Game of Thrones theme song. So if you're a fan of that series and you've gotten used to waiting, right? Uh, Waiting for another book in the series to be written or waiting for the new season. Well, that's that wait is actually going to end this weekend on Sunday. As a matter of fact, uh, you've got all weekend to sit and watch all 73 episodes of the series, actually, and to read or reread perhaps some of George R. R. Martin's books. Uh, you're going to find out more about how that's going to unfold the end anyway, starting on Sunday. It's hard to believe that the show premiered back in 2011. That's the same year that the fifth book was actually released. And since then, Fans have still been waiting for book six, and they wonder if there ever will be a book six or perhaps the book seven, which is supposed to be how long that series is. But I know TV people are all waiting to hear about the new series kicking off on Sunday. So we're going to talk about that now with the help of Rick Forchuk, TV and movie reviewer at rickspicks.ca and on the Jill Bennett Show here on CKNW. Hi, Rick. 
Hello, Simi. Good to talk to you again. Nice to hear from you, too. So are you a big Game of Thrones fan? I am. I wouldn't say I'm huge over the top, but I have watched it all. I don't think we missed an episode, and I quite enjoy it. It's spectacular. It has breadth and width and depth that we don't see much on television, and it's the most expensive TV series ever made. No kidding, well, right? I've heard that this is a, like you could make a lot of movies based off this TV series and what they've spent on it. Yeah, well, let me just let me qualify that. It's actually tied for the most expensive TV series ever made uh, with a budget of, well, over $100 million. Oof. Now, if you, if you were to guess at with which series it's tied, what would you think? I would think Westworld. Well, you'd think, but it's not. It's Friends. Oh, because you paid so much for the salaries. I think because towards the end so there, weren't they salaries. all making like a million dollars each a per week. episode? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So uh, that's, the, uh, that's the only qualifier. It's, it's huge. But most of the money, of course, here uh, goes into special effects and story uh, because uh, anything that comes out of Britain uh, with all sorts of British ties, there's a lot of Irish money in this, doesn't really operate on the kind of Hollywood star system that we're used to in North America. So they can pay these actors relatively little money. They can use the real money for stories and special effects, and away we go. So, yes, it's very exciting, and uh, I know a lot of people are really, really jammed up about uh, seeing this on Sunday night. But let's be honest here, Rick. It's not really ending after this season, is it? Because, see, I keep hearing every day about some spinoff here or some prequel here. Like, there's a whole Game of Thrones universe. Yes, there are actually five, uh, five specific spinoffs that are currently being worked on. And there's a prequel that is being worked on, and that prequel takes place about 8,000 years before the action in Game of Thrones, and we don't know for sure yet, but it's rumored to uh, show us some of the ancestors of the people that um, we currently know on the show. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens. And of course, as the series plays out, Simi, over the next several weeks, uh, the big question will be, who will own the Iron Throne at the end of it all, or will anyone? But I suspect someone will. And there are even Las Vegas odds makers. You're kidding that are me. Looking at, uh, they've got an online poll. Uh, TV Week magazine this week has got all of the people that are running in this thing. And it goes from uh, 3.8% odds for Cersei Lannister to Bran Stark at 25%. The smart money says Bran Stark is going to be the one that winds up on the throne. What about Jon uh, Snow? <laughs> yeah, he's second, okay. 22.2%. And uh, before him, the mother of dragons, Daenerys, uh, she's 16.7%. So there's big money on this. So people are very, very serious about what's going on here. They're very serious about uh, the characters. And I quite like the show for that reason as well, because it is action-driven, yes, but it's also very strongly character-driven. And these are strong characters. They're great people that participate in this. I, I was wondering about that myself because I thought, what is it do you think about this show that attracts people? And they, it's literally like as soon as you like a character, they kill it off or something terrible happens. And yet people are su such huge fans of this. Like, So, Rick, what do you think it is about the show? Well, that's exactly what it is. Uh, it's like life in that you can't really predict it. Um, there's a thing called television armor. Uh, television armor means that characters in regular series uh, can go, go to the brink, but they can't die. Uh, and we see right. that in all of the, you know, the Magnum PIs of this world and all of those kinds of series. There is no television armor with Game of Thrones. Uh, we can go right from the very first one, Ned Stark. Uh, it, it, this guy dies. 
beheaded in front of his children. Yeah, in I the saw that episode. episode of the, yeah, it was yeah. brutal. <laughs> and once we saw that, we realized nobody's safe. And I think that's part of the fascination here, because you can be a great fan of, uh, oh, Tyrion Lannister, my favorite character, uh, but you don't know from week to week, month to month, year to year, if he will actually survive, uh, because they could kill him off, because, well, that's how this show works. That is so fascinating because traditional television was always, there were certain things that were untouchable, right? On a popular TV show, certain things that you could not do. This show has kind of rewritten all of that. Yeah, exactly. Because you can do anything on this show. Now, there's a lot of criticism about the amount of nudity and the way sex and particularly sexual violence against women is portrayed. Uh, The show ran in China. China took all of those pieces out. And the series was a, a dismal failure. And not because those pieces were out, but because what was left made no sense at all. So um, it requires that. You know, George R. R. Martin says in his uh, in interviews uh, that uh, this kind of violence goes along with war, especially in ancient times. And to leave it out would be disingenuous. So it's included. And a lot of people don't like it. And I'm not thrilled with it either. I think there's too much. But... It is what it is, and uh, the series itself stands on its own, and the results speak for themselves. Uh, It's the best HBO series ever in terms of viewers. It surpassed The Sopranos, so it has more than 16 million viewers a week, and that's just on HBO. It it runs around the world, and on other carriers, uh, old seasons, uh, on other carriers in Canada and the U.S. Right. That's pretty successful stuff. Well, Rick, I guess I know what you're going to be doing on uh, Sunday night. Yeah, recording. That's what we do. <laughs> okay. You know what I typically do? It was, you know, Betty and I will watch the first episode of something, then we'll record several so that we can binge watch them. It's one of the things I like about streaming media. Yeah. You can binge watch a season all at once. So That's a good I way do to do own, it. Yeah, I do my own binge watching. I like that system. I like it. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Simi. That is Rick Forchuk, TV and movie reviewer at rickspicks.ca. You'll also catch him on The Jill Bennett Show right here on CKNW. He's talking about he's a fan of Game of Thrones. So we've been talking about the opioid overdose crisis. And earlier we spoke with Garth Mullins and he just, he had a really fascinating and interesting take on the whole situation. He's the producer of the Crackdown podcast, which you can find online. He's also an opioid user who advocates access to opioid addiction treatment like methadone in order to really put a dent uh, in what we see going on with the opioid overdose crisis. And that crisis is actually taking a bit of a turn, could be getting worse. Vancouver Coastal Health says that fentanyl is being mixed with other drugs now, even more, uh, to make it more deadly. We've seen an increase in overdoses, mainly after users are taking substances that have been cut with benzodiazepines. That is a commonly uh, drug commonly used in anti-anxiety medication, and it kind of works the same way that alcohol kind of slows your breathing down. And the problem is that opioids do that too in different ways. So mixing drugs like fentanyl and benzodiazepines is especially harmful because while naloxone might counteract the effects of the opioids, it doesn't work on the synthetic additives. So we wanted to talk more about this, obviously find out about this turn of events. Our guest is Dr. Peter uh, Klakowitz, who's the family and addiction medicine doctor at St. Paul's Hospital and out in the community in Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Is this a problem that you have been seeing crop up more? Well, the the issue and the, the crisis of the poisoned drug supply um, has been an issue for the last five years. And um, we're, 
we're not getting out of this crisis with ongoing uh, deaths matching uh, uh, last year's uh, amounts. And it's it's an ongoing issue where the drug supply is being uh, poisoned, uh, in other words, tainted with other uh, substances such as uh, fentanyl, uh, carfentanyl, other analogs, and now uh, with uh, such things as benzodiazepines. Right. So this is a new trend, is to mix these drugs with benzodiazepines. Well, I think, you know, and, and here I'm, I'm speculating, uh, um, you know, as, as a safe drug supply and uh, real heroin, which is what most people are seeking, is inaccessible, uh, then the drug supply uh, sort of responds to the uh, the demand and um, other um, less predictable uh, opioids such as the synthetic uh, fentanyl and its analogs are are being mixed in there to replace that that missing that absent uh, heroin from the drug supply. Right. And so this is obviously causing a lot of complications, I would imagine, because we've always heard, okay, well, at least we have naloxone. Right. Naloxone will reverse a uh, opioid uh, overdose because it's a opioid blocker. So it'll basically get in there and outcompete and block the opiate sedating effects on, on a person. Um, and it's, I mean, it's short acting and it, uh, you can give it in repeated doses uh, and it's given until the opioid wears off and the person is no longer in uh, over-sedated or respiratory depression. The complicating factor now with mixing other things in there, such as benzodiazepines, which are strong uh, medications uh, that have a sedative and long-acting effect and can further uh, increase respiratory depression. So when you when you give uh, naloxone, um, the opiates are reversed. However, um, the effects of the benzodiazepines are ongoing. So what we've been seeing, um, you know, even this past week in the St. Paul's Emergency Department is uh, sort of a lack of response from uh, naloxone alone and kind of requiring more uh, resuscitation efforts from the doctors and the healthcare team. And Dr. Clockwood, that's kind of scary because we know that you know we've conducted this pretty successful campaign here in BC to have naloxone widely available, and now we're saying we might be running out of options. Um, well, you know, uh, it is it is uh, concerning, and um, the studies out of uh, uh, the BC CDC have shown that with the wide distribution of naloxone. Uh, the the rates of deaths have been decreased, maybe uh, you know uh, by three or four times uh, from what it would be without access to naloxone. So naloxone has been successful, but it's uh, it's really just a temporary measure to reverse an opioid. Uh, it doesn't treat the opioid use disorder, and now with the drug supply being further contaminated by. Uh, other non-opioid uh, medications, uh, the issue becomes even more complicated. Right. So then are we going to have to rethink our approach here? Like what else are we going to have to think about doing? Right. Well, I, I think, you know, the, the message is that uh, the use, the, the consequences from uh, drug use has changed because uh, the drugs are 
tainted and the drug supply has been poisoned. Um, and, and we've tried multiple measures, including the distribution of, of naloxone. But really, it's a it's a matter of drug supply. And and now with this, you know, benzo is just yet another example. Next week or next month, it'll probably be another substance that get that's getting cut into the the drug supply. So I, I think it's really a bigger conversation about uh, what do we do as a society uh, with regards to the uh, having uh, safe and predictable and uh, uh, unpoisoned or untainted, untainted uh, drug supply uh, for people that, uh, for various reasons, right. are using. So it's almost like they're they're always a step ahead of us, the people who are putting these things on the streets. Well, in, in many ways, uh, you know, why are they kind of getting creative? They're responding to the demands uh, for opioids and um, the war on drugs and prohibition and sort of increased enforcement and seizures of heroin and and even seizures of fentanyl may be just making it more difficult for the uh, the the I guess unregulated drug s- supply market to get creative and put other uh, substances in there that uh, that are hard you know right. to to give an effect um, from a drug that that's missing in in uh, in the equation and what 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 drug is missing is really uh, heroin or diacetylmorphine which is just a, a ester form of of morphine right so they're trying to make up something instead of that. Uh, exactly. Okay. Dr. Klockowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you're welcome. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Peter Klockowitz, family and addiction medicine doctor at St. Paul's Hospital. Some intriguing new information out from BC Hydro today. Newer apparently doesn't always mean better when it comes to energy consumption. I was really surprised to hear this because you would think that anything built newer is more energy efficient or has taken all of those things, energy saving into consideration when it's being built. But that's not according to what this BC Hydro report says. It found that newer high-end condo buildings, electricity use is almost double what an older one would use. Obviously, we wanted to find out more about this. So Tanya Fish joins us now, spokesperson for BC Hydro. Tanya, thanks for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. So tell me, what did you guys look at here? So we looked at the electricity use of condos and apartment buildings. And as you said, we did find that the newer high-rise buildings, so these are buildings that are over five stories and built after 2010, do use about double the amount of electricity as buildings that were built in the 1980s. We think this is largely due to these new buildings, you know, having more suites um, and also having more luxury amenities. So things like pools and hot tubs and fitness centers, party rooms. There's some examples of buildings in downtown Vancouver that actually have bowling alleys and a movie theater. So all of this really contributes to that higher electricity use that we're seeing. So interestingly, right. actually, we looked at the the energy use of the, the buildings. Actually, only 50% of the total electricity use goes to the individual units. The other half is covered by that common use account to pay for these additional uh, amenities, as well as the light and heat and all those things that go into the common spaces in these buildings. That's a huge amount, though, like 50% more. That is not small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is quite significant for sure. So we looked at you know the average apartment and condo dweller's bill, uh, their monthly hydro bill is about $43 a month. So if they had to pay for this additional electricity used by these amenities and the common spaces, it would add another $40 to their bill potentially, um, which brings their bill almost the same amount as a single family home pays each month, which is around, 100, around $103. So quite a significant jump yeah. there. 
I was wondering too, like this seems quite a contradiction, right? From, I would think that newer buildings, we've talked about, you know, having, being LEED certified and Mm -hmm. energy efficiency and all that kind of stuff. Are we not, are we being hypocrites about this? So we are seeing the the suites themselves being equipped with energy efficient uh, items. So things like LED lighting, Energy Star appliances, all these things which help to reduce the, the electricity used by the individual units. But again, those hot tubs and pools and all of those things, they're huge consumers of electricity. And that's really what's driving this higher usage. Right. So are there ways then for buildings, like what I'm sure if some buildings look at this and there's going to be people who go home tonight and want to know from their strata, are we doing this? Like, are we spending all this money on this? Can they retrofit? What can they do? Yeah. So we actually offer some great incentives for people or building managers or stratas who are looking to replace older inefficient technology and, you know, go towards some more energy efficient options. Um, so one of a, one great option is adding uh, occupancy sensors. So these are great to, to, you know, add into hallways or parking garages or common use spaces. So someone walks into the space and then the lights go on automatically. So great option. It helps to reduce that wasted, wasted electricity that we often see in these buildings. If you think about the average apartment building, everything's on 24 hours a day, seven yeah. days a week. The lights, the heat, all those things. Um, and lots of that time, it's not actually occupied. Those spaces aren't occupied. So some wasted electricity there. So the occupancy sensors are a great way to cut back on that usage. Also, upgrading to energy-efficient lighting can reduce the, the lighting costs by about 40%. So some significant savings there as well. And also, when you improve the efficiency of the lighting, you'll also reduce the amount of heat that the lights give off. And then that will, in turn, help to reduce the amount of um, cooling, your cooling system, um, having to work as hard to, to cool things down. So. It's interesting because I think you know, these are all things that we used to do. Uh, and we kind of got away from that because we assume these new places that we live already do all this stuff for us. Yeah, potentially, potentially, yeah. So just thinking about you know things like going to your strata council or property managers who are looking to, to add some more energy efficient options, options um, do some cost comparison too, see you know how much it's going to cost to retrofit, and then also look at the potential savings on on those strata fees that currently cover the electricity that's that's used by the common spaces. All right. Well, good advice for people out there. Tanya, thank you so much for your time on this. Thanks for having me, Simi. Talk to you soon. Yes, we will. That's Tanya Fish, BC Hydro spokesperson. I was really surprised to hear this stat that newer condo buildings, so buildings built since 2010, actually use up more electricity, like way more electricity energy than older condo buildings do. They said up to up to 50% more